McClellan. Good morning, Jason. Good morning, Mr. Alejandro. How's it going? Fantastic so far. Good, good, good. Well, we have an exciting show because uh, the interview today is with Gary Witta. It's a short interview, but uh, after the interview, uh, Jason and I will talk about it and then talk about some other pressing topics in the news in the UFO world going on right now. But the interview is with Gary Witta. He is actually helped start PC Gamer magazine. He uh, has written a lot of uh, science fiction for like uh, video games and stuff like this. And uh, just recently, he started writing screenplays. So he worked on a screenplay for um, the Book of Eli with Denzel Washington, and it, more recently, in a movie to come out uh, soon. He worked with M. Night Shyamalan and with Will Smith on this new movie, After Earth. So pretty cool. So we'll talk to him about After Earth because that's what they're promoting right now. But we also will talk to him about extraterrestrial life because, of course, in science fiction, that is a very common topic, including in his work. So we'll ask him all about that. So this is going to be a whole lot of fun. But before we get into that, uh, Jason and I talk about our stories of the week, our UFO news stories of the week. And why don't we start with you, Jason? What is your story of the week? Thank you, Alejandro. I think uh, for my story from last week, I'm going to go with the story about uh, HuffPost Live and a segment they did talking mm-hmm. about the scientific search for extraterrestrial life. Now, for those of you not familiar with HuffPost Live, HuffPost Live is basically a web video channel, a news channel uh, done by the major news giant, the Huffington Post. And I believe it was last year they launched this online network called HuffPost Live, where they have live video segments throughout the day. And one of these on Tuesday, April 9th, happened to be all about searching for ET. And they had uh, a host and a panel of people joining um, on Google Hangouts, like Skype, uh, a video networked call. So these people were on video uh, remotely. And those people were Seth Shostak from the SETI Institute, um, MUFON journal editor Roger Marsh, and Huffington Post journalist Lee Spiegel, our buddy Lee Spiegel. And these guys talked about the search for extraterrestrial life. And uh, Roger Marsh, as one would expect from Roger Marsh, he commented on SETI saying, you know, it's great what they're doing, but, you know, they're looking out into space to see what they can find, and that's that's great. But 
we, speaking about MUFON, are looking right here on Earth and seeing that the evidence is right here. And, you know, he, he pointed out and said what you and I hear a lot, Alejandro, is is people in response to any time we write about or talk about the search for extraterrestrial life, we hear a lot of people say that, you know, that why are you searching? Because intelligence is already right here on this planet. Intelligent life is already here, and we know that. And that's a stand that a lot of people take. But uh, something important that I thought came out of this was really good um, that Lee actually brought up, Lee Spiegel mentioned, uh, in response to the the host of this segment. The host said, so why should we assume that UFOs are extraterrestrial spacecraft? And Lee jumped in and said, we shouldn't. And that's part of the problem. A lot of people do jump to that conclusion that, just because there's something in the sky we can't identify, it's an alien spacecraft. And that's not the case. And even Roger Marsh uh, agreed with that and said, we we don't know what they are. That's what identify, unidentified means. So they pointed out that important fact that, there, yes, sure, there is a percentage of things that can't be, on a, can't be identified, and there's a good probability that they could certainly be of extraterrestrial origin. But this term UFO has become associated and sort of synonymous with alien and that's unfortunate and shouldn't be the case but regardless go go to openmind.tv we've got the video on there of this segment that aired on HuffPost Live talking about searching for ETs and I thought that was pretty great yeah it's really cool on uh Lee and Roger's side to discuss that and point that out but I think there's a misunderstanding with SETI where that's Shostak's point is that, okay, you guys are mad that we're not looking into UFOs, but as you guys have said, UFOs aren't necessarily extraterrestrial. We're SETI. We're about looking for extraterrestrial life. So that's why we don't look into UFOs, because we don't think they're related to extraterrestrial life, which, of course, is their right, and which would make sense then as to why they don't look into UFOs. Right. And also in SETI's defense and anybody else's defense, people get get angry when you know a, a researcher or an organization isn't doing this or isn't doing that and you know would it be great if everybody could do everything absolutely you know but you you have to pick your battles i guess and and, and focus in your area and SETI has chosen what they're focused on and that's great that's what they do they can't do everything for everybody you right know, they, they've got their focus and a misconception that people have about SETI is that the SETI institute doesn't only use their Allen telescope array to listen for radio transmissions from extraterrestrials. They that's one facet of what the organization does. They do so much more. They've got so many projects going on and a lot of it uh has to do with astrobiology. You know, there there are the SETI astronomers who are involved in a lot of these studies looking at uh microbial life on different planets and stuff. These guys are, are, are some of the leading people going through the data that various missions are, are bringing back to us. So they're more than doing more than just listening to radio transmissions. Right. And it, it is kind of funny because MUFON has the same criticism from you know the UFO crowd in that um, why doesn't MUFON do this and why doesn't MUFON do that? And I think we've seen in the past that when an organization tries to take on too much they spread themselves too thin, and then they get very little done, uh, especially when it's a volunteer organization. I think uh, a lot of people will then criticize like a MUFON and say, well, you guys really aren't doing anything. 
when, um, you know, they try to do too much. So that's another danger where it demonstrates, especially for a nonprofit, why you do want to focus as much as possible. Yeah. Well, what's your story, Alejandro? My story now, of course, there's some there's some developments on some big stories going on right now, which is uh, the Stephen Greer alien, and then uh, um, Stephen Bassett, the Steve stories, and uh, his thing going on. But we'll talk about that after the interview. We'll talk more about those because those are a little bigger, and we both, I know, want to share some ideas on that. So I'll talk about because there's there's kind of a lot of neat stories uh, in the news. Um, so I'll talk about, I think I'll talk about the Westall 66 UFO Encounter Park, just because what this is, is um, this is probably one of the best UFO sightings in Australia. Happened in 1966 uh, in this park. So this park had like 90 people in it, including some high schoolers who were out practicing soccer. And all 90s of these people saw a UFO. Um, there's different accounts. Some people said there were three. But in particular, one silver flying saucer type object that came and it landed in the forest. And as people kind of were shocked and looking at it, it then took off, uh, hovered, and then took off at a really fast speed. So you had a lot of witnesses to this, which is uh, really interesting. And some of these witnesses were in a documentary that came out a couple years ago and uh, also have been talking about this um, ever since. So uh, there's a story that came out in an Australian newspaper at, that they're actually going to commemorate this site, and they're going to build a UFO playground. So they're going to build this big silver flying saucer. That, it looks really cool with this slide that comes off of it, you know, for the kids. There's a net for them to climb into this flying saucer and then like a fireman pole in the middle that they can go down and it's going to have LEDs around it. So it's going to be this really elaborate. They're spending something like $150,000 on this thing uh, to commemorate this thing and they're going to have a plaque that talks about the sighting. So it's just really cool that the city is going to take it seriously and they interviewed some of the witnesses uh, who still live in the area including this lady called Joy Clark, and we have a picture of her on the website at the place where they're going, where she had her sighting and where they're going to build this playground. And they're just talking about how happy they are that it helps that uh, people take them seriously because, of course, they've been made fun of over the years. And uh, Joy Clark's friend said that, uh, you know, she has uh, in particular felt kind of funny about it because she hasn't felt taken seriously and how uh, she wouldn't have even told anybody, and I think this is an important aspect in that a lot of people don't tell people about their sightings, she said she wouldn't have even told anybody if there weren't so many other people that saw it with her, because um, she wouldn't want to put herself out there to be made fun of. So, kind of really cool that uh, this has popped up again, and it stays in Australians' consciousness and ours, that we remember this uh, important sighting. So, I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, it is interesting any time uh, a place will put up something to sort of memorialize an, uh, an important event that happened related to something extraterrestrial. This is neat. You know, it was really neat when uh, they did it in... Uh, UFO. UFO. Not extraterrestrial. We just went over this. Yes, well, <laughs> you know, the the, uh, the plaque that was put up, when was it last year, for the, uh, the Betty and Barney Hill Hill the commemoration of yeah. that event, yeah. the state actually put up a plaque t 
to uh, to commemorate that. It's really cool when this stuff happens. But in the uh, the case of this Australian playground, um, big UFO, uh, you know, one might wonder. If this is yet another example of possible conditioning being done, Alejandro, to get oh, children used okay. to the idea of extraterrestrial visitors. I don't buy that whatsoever. I mean, a, a city is conspiring to get kids ready. Uh, I, don't, I don't really... It's a city government, Alejandro, and government is the enemy. Yeah. No, I I just threw I that out there. I, I don't, I don't believe see. it for a second either, Alejandro, but yeah. I had it out there. No, I could. I see what you're saying, though. I, I'm sure there are people who, who feel that way, uh, who totally disagree with me uh, and think that that is what's happening here. Um, but uh, I think it's just, you know, things are, we overcomplicate things, I think, a lot of times. If these are just regular city people, I mean, I, I work with our local t- small city government in Maricopa. I know some of the city people. I mean, they're just, they're taking serious what their constituents, what the people in the city say, because they're their friends. And, you know, I think that's what's important. And that's the, the grassroots type of thing that can really build momentum to to help this stuff out, I think. I'll tell you this, Alejandro. If it were, if I worked for a city and I was on a committee or something, and I was asked, "We're going to build a, a playground. What, do, what are your ideas? What should we build?" I'd say, "Let's build this awesome UFO with slides and stuff." <laughs> yeah, that's hell yeah, great. Exactly. Me too. You know, because that's what I would want to play in as a big UFO. So yeah, no but, conspiracy there. Right. Totally. All right. Well, thank you, Jason. We'll talk some more about some other stories going on. But uh, for now, let's go ahead and listen to Gary Witta. And I can't remember if I said PC Magazine. It was PC Gamer Magazine that he helped start. PC Gamer. Because he's into sci-fi, writing PC games, and we'll talk a little bit about that. Let's talk to Mr. Gary Witta. All right, so this is exciting. Uh, You are one of the primary writers with uh, M. Night Shyamalan on this new movie, After Earth. That's right. So maybe in a nutshell, could you give us kind of an idea of the the plot of the story? Yeah, the basic storyline, <clears throat> excuse me, is um, uh, Will and Jaden play a, a father and son uh, who come from a, uh, a long line of uh, a military family, and um, the the story takes place a thousand years after uh mankind has been forced to evacuate Earth because of uh, various kind of e- catastrophic ecological changes that have happened to the planet. Uh, basically, Earth very, very quickly uh, becomes no longer inhabitable by mankind. And so they establish this elite um, uh, military core uh, called the United Ranger Corps, whose job it is to oversee the uh, safe evacuation of mankind from Earth and um, traveling across space to to relocate and find a new uh, world where where humankind can can safely live. And a thousand years later, Will's character Cipher is is uh, a general in that Ranger Corps and one of the key figures in uh, in the survival and, and kind of the salvation, I guess, of of mankind. And uh, Will's son, through Cipher's son, uh, Katai is uh, desperate to follow in uh, his father's footstep and be, you know, kind of a great military character as well. But unlike his dad, he just doesn't have the right stuff in the same way. He kind of struggles to to get through the military training and, and really wants his father to 
admire him and uh, and look up to him and the way he looks up to his father, but it's just kind of not happening. And there's this uh, fractured relationship between the two of them. And um, uh, Cypher's wife, Katai's mother, suggests that they go away on a on a father son trip in an attempt to kind of bond and and heal their their broken relationship. And so they travel off together on a on a spaceship, which gets hit by a freak asteroid storm. And uh, they uh, have to kind of alter course and crash land on Earth, which no human being has uh, set foot on for more than a thousand years since we all had to evacuate uh, many generations ago. And over the course of the last 1,000 years since humankind has left, uh, there's kind of an accelerated evolutionary process that's taken place on Earth. Uh, the purpose of which partly is to ensure that uh, humankind, which has been expelled from the planet, uh, can never return. We, you know, we weren't welcome there anymore, and we're still not welcome a thousand years later. And so, everything about the planet, for, you know, everything about the planet's ecosystem—the the, the air, the water, the wildlife, the plants, the food—everything is hostile to humans. And so, it's really the most hostile um, planetary environment you can imagine. And in the crash, uh, Cypher is very, very badly injured and uh, only has a few hours to live, uh, desperately needs rescue so he can get medical help, uh, and his son is, is the only survivor of the crash uh, and the only one who's not injured and able to kind of get up and, and go look for a rescue so, and, and has to travel um, a, pretty, a pretty big distance over this incredibly inhospitable terrain. Uh, to where the tail section of the ship, the ship kind of breaks up in two parts as it comes down in the atmosphere, and get to the tail section of the ship where there's a rescue beacon that he can fire off and, and uh, send a, a rescue signal and hopefully get some help. And uh, that's really kind of the, the movie. It's almost kind of like an old-fashioned castaway shipwreck movie. The whole the whole story is is pretty much just Will and Jaden crash landed on this planet, and uh, Jaden really finally kind of this is the ultimate test now, having to finally kind of step up and become the military. Uh, the hero, the, the character just like his father that he's always wanted to be. And so there's this great kind of outward journey of survival and rescue, uh, but at the same time what the movie's really about, we think, is kind of this inward journey, this, this more personal journey of, of, uh, of, of the father and son finally kind of learning to connect as a father and son through the process of that adventure. Right, kind of a hallmark of Shyamalan movies where there's this uh, really touching interpersonal relationship uh, and development going on. Yeah, I think um, one of the reasons I liked working with Knight is I think he and I have a very similar approach in that, um, you know, we write a lot of genre stuff. You know, he likes to write kind of horror and, and, and suspense, and I write a lot of science fiction and fantasy, and this is kind of a combination of all those elements. But uh, Knight always likes there to be like a, a really powerful theme or something very simple, and, you know, some, some kind of key emotional idea that informs everything that the movie is is about, and I really responded to that. That's certainly the kind of movie that Will wanted to make. There is this there is this idea that on the outside, um, you know, certainly what we think will hope will attract people initially is this big epic science fiction adventure. You know, having crash landed on this this dangerous planet, and there's all kinds of crazy um, you know monsters and 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 creatures and things that are constantly threatening um, uh, the lives of our heroes. Uh, but what the movie, like, again, what, what's really at the heart of it is this, this, this more intimate personal journey, really a story about a, a broken family that kind of learns to, to kind of heal its, its emotional, um, wounds. And, and by the end of the, the movie, hopefully, you know, uh, uh, well, you know, Jaden has not just saved 
his father's life, but also kind of save their relationship through his uh, through the journey that he's been on. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's what's great about Shyamalan sci-fi is that it adds that dimension. So when you're done watching the movie, uh, you know you've watched sci-fi or paranormal or something like that. But you also feel like you've watched this uh, emotional kind of movie. You know, you feel like you're walking away with uh, having gone to something very serious and dramatic as well as... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at Signs, you know, Signs on the surface is a movie about an alien invasion, right? But deep down, what it's really about is that one character kind of learning to to regain his, his last faith. Um, and you know, something like the village, which on the surface is about you know the idea of this, these monsters that live outside of this village terrorizing this community. But again, what it turns out to be really about is you know the lengths that uh, parents will go to to protect their children. So there's always a kind of an external idea, and then a bigger internal idea. I think a more kind of universal emotional idea that's really driving everything that's happened. That's what I love about Knight's movies. They all have a really strong theme. I like to think that the stuff I am attracted to to write has a, has a strong theme. The Book of Eli obviously is very strongly about right. you know religion and the, and the negative and positive powers of religious faith. And so this was this was a great a, a great um, project for me in that you know you get to have all the fun of playing in this huge sandbox of this this crazy you know futuristic version of Earth where evolution's gone out of control and there's all kinds of fun science fiction stuff you can play with. We we got to create a whole new alien race for the movie because there are aliens in the movie. So it's a huge enterprise and a lot, a lot of fun for a sci-fi geek like me. But mm-hmm. when we're writing, what we're always you know mindful of is the fact that we're telling a father-son story. This, in fact, started as not a science fiction movie. When Will originally had the idea, the idea was a father and a son who had a similar kind of broken relationship who were driving in the mountains. And the car went off the oh, road wow. in the mountains and the father was badly injured and the son had to go get help. And so it was the same story, just without any of the, the, the sci-fi, you know, trappings around it. And I think that's always a good sign when you have a story that can that doesn't rely on the science fiction aspect, that, can, that is just a good human story no matter where it's set. Mm-hmm. And then you can add the science fiction on to really kind of amplify the themes and make it a bigger movie. But, you know, even even with the bigger version of the movie, we're still really telling the, 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 the very simple car crash version of the father-son story. Right. And on the sci-fi end, you know, especially when it comes to sci-fi, and I know this is something you struggle I mean, you write video games, a lot of sci-fi. Um, you kind of always feel like cause there's been so much sci-fi for decades, you've seen it all. But you guys have done something really unique here in the ecological aspect. And it sounds like, you know, it's like the Earth revolted and everything got bigger and stronger to kick out the humans, like you put yeah, I think, you know, we tried, I think we, you know, I have to see the, 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 the finished film and people can decide for themselves, but I think we tried to, um, I think the movie does have an ecological message, but we tried not to lay it on too thick because I think that's something that's been, you know, done a lot in Hollywood lately, the kind of the global mm-hmm. warming ecological. I think it's very easy for that, for, for people to kind of roll their eyes at that stuff, even though it's a, it's a serious message and a worthwhile message. I think you have to, to um, be careful in, in, in how you handle that. Uh, and so it's, you know, it's, it, it's not a huge part of the movie. It's really just kind of the backstory of how Earth came to be. There was this idea that, that Will really liked, um, that the reason we had to leave is that they had, there, there was suddenly, um, a, a, a very drastic, uh, shift in the planet's ecosystem, which, uh, seems to be targeted at um, humans. I think there's, I think there's this idea that the planet had basically 
decided that uh, the humans had, had t- crossed some kind of tipping point where they had become too great a threat to the overall ecology of the planet. And so they had to be removed from the equation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the planet starts trying to kind of kill us off any way that it can through changes in the atmosphere. The atmosphere becomes toxic. Um, there's all kinds of natural disasters. It's, it's a really apocalyptic situation. Uh, but rather than just die out, fortunately, at this point, you know, I think it's, like a, it's, it's, it's 100 years in the future when this starts to happen, that we do, you know, have the technology to leave and try to find someplace else. So we build these arcs, we build these, uh, these massive generation ships that are capable of crossing vast distances. And it takes hundreds of years, but we do eventually find um, other habitable planets. Uh, and so that's that's you know all that all that's really kind of handled in the first five minutes of the movie, and the rest is uh, told you know in the in the thousand years in the future timeline. But we like this idea that um, there was that there was kind of an ecological reason why why we, we were being forced to leave. We we had just become too dangerous to to our own planet that we uh, that we just weren't welcome anymore. Mm-hmm. It's an original ecological apocalypse. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I you know, I, I, I had done a post-apocalyptic movie already, right? And, um, and wasn't necessarily keen to go back and do yet another one because we've seen various plagues, we've seen very, you know, we've seen zombies, we've seen mm-hmm. deadly virus, we've seen nuclear war, we've seen apes rising up, you know, we've seen pretty much every apocalypse that we can imagine, um, and uh, you know, because the, the movie wasn't really about what caused it, it was really more about the father-son journey that we wanted something simple. Uh, but also something that we felt that would that would resonate and also create a, a, a dangerous environment for for them to have to return to. Uh, and again, the idea is you know is Earth is uh, you know, the idea that I originally pitched to Will was it's not an extinction event, it's an eviction event. Mm-hmm. The Earth is, is is forcing us to leave. The you know, we either stay here and die, or we find someplace else to live. Uh, and the idea is that uh, even a thousand years later. Um, Earth doesn't want us back, and in fact has, has very quickly evolved all these various different defense mechanisms to make sure that we can never even come back and recolonize the planet. Right. Now, I'm a big sci-fi fan, and uh, Lord knows you are, and I wanted to get back on something that you had mentioned. You know, uh, I think that M. Night Shyamalan is very good at this, and it looks like you know, you've worked on a couple of projects now with these these two screenplays, The Book of Eli and After Earth. I mean, these big deal movies, but they're sci-fi with these other dimensions that appeal to people who might not be as interested in sci-fi. Is that something you shoot for, and how do you do that? Yeah, maybe so. I mean, I, you know, I think that, I, I don't think of the, the, the Book of Eli as um Science fiction, uh, I guess. I mean, certainly it's futuristic, it's post-apocalyptic, and, and there are, the, you know, and, and also there is this kind of a, I guess, a, a supernatural kind of a spiritual aspect uh, to it, because the movie, you know, I think very strongly uh, hits it in the fictional world of that universe that, that God, you know, does exist. Uh, and so there is there is kind of a, another worldly element to it. And obviously in After Earth, we have, you know, we're a thousand years in the future, which is very, you know, science fictiony. You know, we have a whole, you know, there's, there's an alien war going on, so it's very science fiction. Uh, but again, I come, I come back to this idea that um, I think this, I, for me, it's, it's never about those things. It's never about the aliens. It's never about the apocalypse. It's always about people. It's always about characters. Mm-hmm. And I think what science fiction does, you know, going back to, you know, the, 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 the giants, the people like Asimov and Bradbury and Arthur C. Clarke, um, you know, they understood that science fiction is really just kind of a toolkit that allows you to uh, tell stories in, in, in such a way that are allegorical and relevant to 
things that are happening today. Uh, you know, like Fahrenheit 451, one of my all-time favorite science fiction stories, uh, obviously is really, you know, is, is always relevant to us, you know, because we're all, you know, freedom of speech and freedom of expression and, and creativity is always uh, a, a relevant, uh, a very important uh, human right that needs to be protected. And so Bradbury created, a, you know, this fictional nightmare scenario to, to you know, the kind of the worst case scenario that made us really realize just how precious, um, you know, freedom of speech and, and freedom of, of express, freedom of expression is. And with with Eli, again, it was really a situation. Uh, the idea was to you know to try and create a world and create a, a storyline that would that would allow me to, to to say something that I thought was relevant about uh, the the various positive and 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 ne- negative aspects of religious belief uh, by creating a world where you know religious belief had had almost died out and very very few people understood what it meant. With After Earth, again, it was really just a story about a father and a son and and having them reconnect and using a science fiction toolkit, a certain palette that allowed us to create the most dangerous environment possible, the most fun environment, uh, but which would still allow um, allow us to, to really uh, tell the father-son father, story. Because mm-hmm. uh, I think the other thing that w- when you see the movie, I think this will be very clear, and it's certainly something they've They've tried to articulate in the trailers that, that a lot of the, a lot of the movie thematically is also about fear um, and and different ways to conquer or uh, respond to fear and how fear is either something that can kill you or drive you to uh, success and and to survive. It's really the difference between failure and success. And so um, there was there was this idea that we wanted we wanted to create really the most terrifying environment. For a young boy to have to deal with this idea that everything in this environment will kill you if you let it, mm-hmm. uh, and it is obviously that's that's terrifying, and it'd be very easy in a situation like that to let fear consume you and overcome you and just and and just um, and just kind of lay down and die basically, or you can uh, look at it as a challenge and uh, and as something an obstacle to be overcome and, and vanquished, and uh, and that, that's you know I think kind of a classic heroic myth right that, that's kind of classic mythic stuff and uh and again we, the, the, i think the car crash version of the movie would have been just as valid would have been would, would, would have articulated the father-son story i think just as well but when we're talking about the idea of fear and the idea of um overcoming the most insurmountable odds uh possible going into the science fiction realm allows us to create odds and create a situation that is far beyond anything that we would encounter here, you know, in the real world. Right. So I wanted to touch on also the, the alien aspect, the extraterrestrials. I know you've worked uh, on a lot of video games that kind of deal with this, and uh, we have this vision of the future uh, with it. And it's kind of seemed like a, a common theme. I know you said you use this as kind of a, a tool when you're writing, but in your mind, do you think that extraterrestrial contact is something that is a given in our future that this will happen? Um, personally, yes. I'm a. I, you probably remember. You probably know the name of it better than I do. It's 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 eluding me right now. But whatever that equation is that says you know the once Drake you extrapolate equation. the number. So say again. A Drake equation. Yeah, once you extrapolate the number of you know stars in the universe and the numbers that are, and those that are likely to support you know a planet that could support habitable life. It's it's almost it's almost mathematically preposterous to assume that there wouldn't be anything else, right? The the idea that of all the countless trillions of planets and stars in the universe that life uniquely only ever occurred on one planet in that in that vast vast 
uh, universe is kind of ridiculous when we think about it. And so, you know, I think that whether or not it's anything we'll ever discover um, is an interesting question because, you know, I think there probably, I think, I think there probably are many uninhabited, many uh, inhabited worlds, many intelligent species out there, but they're so far away. Whether or not we would ever encounter them in in in, in anything like a foreseeable future is is another question. Right, that's a tough one. Yeah, because I think you know you start you start dealing with you know light speed limitations and uh, you know it, it's it's it, how would you ever reach anyway? I, I think you know we might one day. Yeah, I, I always thought the contact dealt with this very very well. I thought that was one of the one of the few alien contact movies that 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 felt like it was done in a very realistic way where you know it was it was more to do with a signal uh uh being received rather than just you know you know flying saucers landing and aliens popping out i always thought that was a, that was a more reasonable um scenario to postulate and um yeah I, I guess the short answer to your question is i think yes absolutely uh life on other planets uh whether or not they're they're close enough for, for us to ever imagine getting there or, or communicating with them I think that's when it becomes a lot more complicated. Mm-hmm. And my last question, I want to ask one more question, just because you're kind of a you're a sci-fi guru, is that at least when it comes to television, uh, being a sci-fi fan, I feel really starved for for something there. I mean, there doesn't seem to be as much out there in the space futuristic type of thing. Not even Futurama, which I know you worked on, and I was a huge fan of. But uh, why do you think that is, or do, do you think that that's the case? I think you know. I think it's. I think it's coming back. I think these things are cyclical. You remember? I mean, you know, it was. It wasn't really so long ago that the X Files was the biggest thing on television. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, just recent, more recently, Battlestar Galactica, I think, was hugely successful. Um, but I think that the difficulty has always been that you know, at least in the in the age of network television, it was very difficult to find a science fiction show that had enough mainstream appeal. To support the, the the size of an audience that a network you know, uh, television station demands. Um, these days, though, where we're, we're looking at the fact that most of what's exciting on television is actually happening in cable, uh, where smaller audiences and more niche type shows can find an audience and thrive. I think you're going to see it coming back. I actually think there's more and better um, science fiction. On television now, at any time since probably the 1980s, when we had a lot of it, and I think it is coming back. I think the success of shows—these are more not necessarily science fiction, but shows like Game of Thrones and shows like The Walking Dead, which have been hugely successful—have shown that there is that you know it's not uncool to like this stuff anymore. <laughs> right. find a, if you can find a way to do a science fiction or a fantasy fantasy show that has mainstream appeal that doesn't feel like, you know, it's it, it's something that you would want to watch and see if you'd be ashamed to watch with your family or whatever. Um, I think that that's increasingly coming back. I think that the the, you know, the geeks have kind of inherited the earth and uh, we, we, we've seen the, the, the increase in uh, fantasy, science fiction, genre entertainment becoming more and more mainstream in popular culture. Uh, it's always been, obviously, always been huge in film. Uh, but I do think that we are going to see in the next few years a bit of a renaissance uh, of science fiction and fantasy television as well. Well, I hope you're right, and I think that the work you're doing is certainly helping like that with that. For instance, the book of Eli, my mom loved it. She's certainly not a sci-fi or post-apocalyptic movie fan, but she loved it. And this movie, After Earth, uh, I don't know how it can't be a hit with this cast and the incredible 
um, um, special effects that it has, uh, plus M. Night Shyamalan. So it, it's really exciting. And, I mean, two movies you've got to work on, and these are huge, working with some of the best actors. So are, is there more in the future? Are you working on more scripts? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really proud of the fact that um, both of the movies that I've had made so far are original pieces of science fiction. You know, so, so much these days is an adaptation of a comic book or a video game or whatever. It's, it's really nice to kind of be able to create something from whole cloth. And Eli was an original idea. After Earth, obviously, was, was an original idea. It was Will's original idea, but, uh, but, but original nonetheless. And, um, yeah, when you, have a, when you have someone like Denzel Washington or, or Will Smith who wants to star in the movie... Uh, it makes it much easier to to make to make that a reality. Uh, but I, I, again, to your point about your mother loving the movie, which is great to hear, I think part of the reason why uh, people do respond to movies like Eli and hopefully while they respond to After Earth is again, you know, it's not about the, the, the science fiction. It's really about a universal idea, whether it be about faith or fear or human relationships or family. Those, those are big universal ideas that everyone can appreciate. And they, and again, the sci-fi. Uh, surroundings really just make it more fun, uh, but it's not uh, it's not off-putting because it's it's usually about an emotional concept that is universal to everyone. Uh, as, uh, so far as what I'm doing next, I'm working on a number of things. I'm actually trying to finish another original idea right now, um, which uh, nearer the time I, I actually think you'd, you'd find it quite interesting. It's another big uh, alien contact type movie, but done in a very different way to After Earth. So. Uh, when that is is done, and hopefully we're making that one, we should we should talk again. For sure, because that's one thing that's fun about sci-fi, and as you mentioned, you know, uh, with the Drake Equation and possible ever meeting of extraterrestrial civilizations, sci-fi gives us a platform to at least speculate and kind of work out some scenarios how this might happen. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, and I think you know there is a, there is an enduring uh, human desire to believe that there is something else other than just what we can see here in front of us. And that's often expressed as a religious idea, as a belief in God. Uh, but I think it's, it's increasingly expressed uh, as a belief or a desire or a hope that we'll one day discover that we're not alone in the universe and there are other civilizations out there. All right. Great. Thank you. No worries. Happy to talk to you. Thank you so much. That was a lot of fun. All right. Well, thanks a lot. I hope you enjoy the movie. All right. Thanks to Gary. What a cool guy, a super cool guy. How exciting is this that this guy, I mean, has been working on games and writing about games, and all of a sudden he's writing movies, sci-fi movies, with um, with these major Hollywood stars in these major Hollywood movies. What's with that, Jason? Well, you could come up with anything you want. No, I, I, I think it's another conspiracy theory. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'll let the conspiracy theories rest for today. <laughs> but what did you think? Pretty cool guy, huh? Very cool guy, you know, and I really, really enjoy talking to sci-fi authors. And here's why. You know, I know plenty of people think it's a waste of time and think, you know, this is all fiction. Why do we care what these guys have to say? It's fascinating to look back through history and the history of Hollywood and, and, and films and television and everything else and, and just look at what has come out um, in the past that has been written by sci-fi authors and then what ends up becoming reality as time goes on. Just amazing the concepts these guys come up with and 
more fascinating to me the concepts of extraterrestrial life. It's it's so fascinating to me, and in in my my personal opinion is that life is limitless in the universe. I think there's such a such a variety of types of life that exist, and we have we have no idea what those are. We only know what we're used to, and that's life as we know it. But something that sci-fi authors, many sci-fi authors, do great is envision. The, these other types of life that could exist, and uh, they put it on paper. They, they put it into a, a visual form, and they do it well. One of my favorite um, people to talk to about this was Alan Dean Foster, and Maureen and I interviewed him on Spacing Out. And just to hear how he comes up with concepts for extraterrestrial worlds, for the life that lives on these imaginary planets, and in the case of Alan Dean Foster, he bases a lot of that off of life here on Earth it, because he's a world traveler and uh, really big into animal life and the types of creatures and animal forms we have on this planet. And just his travels through jungles and things like that help him create these alien worlds. But it's fascinating to hear these creative people who have just amazing, amazing uh, visions in their mind for what what worlds could be and what what life could be out there in the universe. I love to see that coming together from the minds of these really impressive people. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm in the creative world myself, but you know, I, I don't have the the vision that these guys have to come up with what they do. What I think is really cool too is that um, in sci-fi, whenever we envision the future especially the distant future, it always includes extraterrestrial life and, and um, you know, re interacting with extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. And it's almost like this subconscious assumption that we all have that the future, sometime in the future, we will become, uh, we will develop some sort of relations with uh, extraterrestrial civilizations. I think that's a fascinating kind of psychological uh, or, or maybe even just sociological type of uh, thing that we have, disposition that we have about our, our future. Yeah, I think you're right. And something that I'm noticing more and more, you know, you're right. This historically has been just a concept that I think you're right. People just assume that sometime in the future we will coexist with extraterrestrials here on the planet or we'll make contact or, or something along those lines. But something I'm noticing uh, more recently in some of these movies coming out is that that future in which all this exists is not so far in the future. Yeah. A lot of these movies are, are placing these things happening in the very near future, you know, 20 to 40 years out from now. Well, and that... Uh you know, this one, of course, we talked about as the ecological type of uh, idea of the planet kicking us off. But uh, I think that's what's interesting, too, is that, you know, if we assume it's kind of like, okay, if there is uh, extraterrestrial uh, or advanced civilizations out there, um, for instance, uh, you know, if we have an infinite number of planets uh, and let's say 1% of them or a 0.1% of them, have uh, advanced civilizations that 1.1% of infinity, infinity is infinity. So, I mean, the, the numbers are huge in the potential. 
And if we look at nature, every nothing's unique in nature. Um, everything has happened before and the interactions. Uh, so, for instance, with uh, life on this planet and us becoming advanced and, uh, and developing this technology and stuff like this, this has happened in other planets before, no doubt. So, uh, the way our planet interacts with humans and how we are, you know, we put, it's funny, job creation is more important than anything. Uh, job creation justifies us drilling for oil and and logging and doing all of these things that are destroying these environments and killing uh, all of these different types of animals and, and species. And if we don't change that, you know, will we just kind of destroy ourselves? Will we kill ourselves with nukes? And will it be tough cookies? That's the way it goes. Um, it's just it's interesting that there are most likely other models and what we're, we're part of nature, so this is kind of a natural evolution going on, um, and I would just love to see one day what other evolution has happened, how other civilizations have dealt with this kind of thing, you know? Well, hopefully you'll get to see that, Alejandro. I know. Dang it. That would be great. <laughs> but so that's what it always makes me think of. Yeah. It's interesting with, with this, uh, you know, Gary talked about after Earth, and I believe that's coming out June seventh. Mm-hmm. But before that, uh, you know, I thought it was interesting with the timing, and we see this a lot in Hollywood movies. Of a similar theme, seem to come out around the same time, and I don't know if everybody's copying each other or what. But, but uh, there's also another movie dealing with sort of futuristic Earth that's been destroyed. That's Oblivion, um, starring Tom Cruise and Morgan Freeman. That mm-hmm. uh, opens. April 19th, and in that story, uh, you have Tom Cruise coming. He's on Earth after Earth has been attacked by aliens like 60 years earlier or something. So there's this Earth that's been destroyed by hostile aliens, and this guy's coming back to Earth. And So sort of a, a similar setup where you have a kind of a destroyed Earth scenario and lone humans back on the planet. So that's interesting with similar themes there, but something that I think is more interesting and is generating a lot of buzz, and it'll be interesting to see what happens with the show and how it's received, but Defiance, the show that Sci-Fi has put together, and that actually premieres today. Um, Tonight is the premiere of Defiance, and Defiance is an interesting show, and sort of along the lines of Gary Whitta here, this movie is based on uh, a video game. Um, so you have this this movie based on a video game, and it's set in the very near future, like I said. I, I, I believe um, the premise of the show takes uh, contact happening with these extraterrestrials in 2013. What year is this? 2013. Mm-hmm. So you have these, these extraterrestrials coming from... Uh, they're, they're looking for a new home because their star went supernova or something like that. So they have to find a new place, and they come to Earth thinking that Earth is uninhabited, and then they find out that humans are here. And so the show is about them trying to work with humans to let get humans to let them live here with us, I guess. Don't know too much about it, but it'll be interesting to see because that's a near a show set in the near future about contact with extraterrestrials and talking about 
a potentially realistic scenario where humans are these aren't from what I can tell the the extraterrestrials in this show they are not the hostile ones humans are the hostile ones we're hostile we we treat these extraterrestrials hostily <laughs> and uh you know it it's it's a matter of trying to work the diplomacy and figuring out how we're going to coexist right. Well, and, you know, on all of these shows that you're talking about, you know, we just heard from Gary Witt, Gary Witter, who is, you know, pretty convinced that there are other civilizations out there. Tom Cruise said he felt the same way. And uh, this Julie Benz is uh, one of the stars on Defiance, yep. is saying the same thing. And I think that is very significant in that with all of these sci-fi shows that are about extraterrestrials, there's no longer any hang-up or any shyness around people saying uh, that they believe extraterrestrials are out there and extraterrestrial civilizations exist. In fact, Julie Benz is pretty funny because after her interview she put on her Twitter, her bio said, actress, dot, 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 I believe in aliens or something like that. It's really funny. But um, I think that's really significant in that we've we've crossed a hurdle where that is okay to believe in extraterrestrials. And I think that's just a step away from people feeling, and this is happening with, you know, uh, um, that, uh, I forget her first name, the, one of the Kardashian sisters, but uh, Jenner's kid, but she's talking about seeing a UFO. But the point being, um, and Russell Crowe and his UFO sighting, that we're, it makes us that much closer to them feeling comfortable to say that they believe in UFOs and UFOs, more of them talking about UFOs and the possibility of extraterrestrials visiting us. And I think that's way more important at this point um, than, you know, banging on the door of the White House. Because, first of all, I think we've shown that the White House doesn't know much through history. And then, second of all, the people inside those doors are much more conservative. They don't think about this stuff as much, and they're not, you know, as ready to to go there. But if the public is, and the public begins to get more and more comfortable with this idea, that's when you know we we create this momentum where it makes things change. I think uh, that's the grassroots important type of direction you've got to go, as opposed to trying to go there and force these people twist their arms into something that they don't want to do and they're just not going to. Yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, we've talked about this before and the public interest is definitely there and it has been for a long time. And as we've mentioned, I think the extraterrestrial themed movies, extraterrestrial themed television shows really help to open that door for people because like you said these movies come out the interviews happen the people starring in these shows are asked about their personal beliefs they openly voice those beliefs and that allows their fans the general public people to hear these people in the spotlight um, talking about extraterrestrial life and in some way that makes them feel like it's a topic that can be discussed in the open they see Celebrities talking about it. They see it on television uh, during interviews. These guys are talking about UFOs, and they're talking about it seriously. This is great. So I think you're right. It does open up the doors. It does get well, – while I, I do firmly believe that the general public has a strong interest in extraterrestrial life and generally believes 
that extraterrestrial life exists and will one day meet extra, intelligent extraterrestrials by having these these shows, having celebrities talk about it, have it be a, a normal interview topic. It opens up the topic to be a topic that's okay to discuss in the mm-hmm. general public. Talk about it seriously, treat it seriously, and you know it, it slowly but surely starts lessening that ridicule factor. Yeah. I mean, there's no doubt a lot of people when we post these stories about celebrities will say, well, what do we care what they think? Well, you know what? Most people care what they think, much more than politicians. I mean, look at C-SPAN. <laughs> there's not much viewership to C-SPAN or, or there's much more viewership to like TMZ or right. the gossip shows that are after the news on every channel. Um, people care more about what celebrities are doing and saying than politicians are doing saying I I think as we could safely say as so, embarrassing as it is and it, you know whatever it says about humanity it that's that's the reality you know right. the number one news stories will be about Miley Cyrus getting a haircut you know a, uh, there could be wars going on people dying nuclear missiles launched but more people want to read the headline about Miley Cyrus getting a haircut and who do you want to be more like? I mean, uh, people, you know, Julie Benz, a beautiful actress. People want to be more like her or uh, than they do, you know, uh, Condoleezza Rice or something like that. You know, these are the people that typically people model their lives after as actors and actresses and their fashion sense and all of these things, um, more so than politicians. So uh, these guys are the people, they're the cool kids. Who everybody's trying to be like. I, I, you know, it comes back to high school where it's more obvious. But I don't think people really change much uh, after they leave high school or college. Well, that, everybody that's wants true, to be the cool kids. You know, during the interview, Gary Witta said something funny, but it's it's also quite true in that geeks have inherited the earth, and I think yeah. that's that's a large part uh, a contributing factor to what's going on right now because a lot of these. Younger actors now, a lot of the younger filmmakers, um, you know, are the the geek kids from from the '80s and and so on. So you know, they're they're now in a position of being in the spotlight of creating the the geeky content, if you will, you know, pushing sci-fi and things like that that address this topic. So we're seeing more and more of it. They're the people who have the the cameras on them. So I think that having them be vocal and, and have the the platforms that they do that is really opening it up and, and letting this topic be approachable by everybody now. Yeah. All right. Well, let's – I think this is kind of a good segue into the citizens' hearing um, on disclosure mm-hmm. uh, with Stephen Bassett's thing that he's doing later this month at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., where he's going to have some congressmen, former congressmen come, and now he's got like six – or seven of them, um, where they're going to come and they're going to listen to, well, some UFO witnesses, but mostly UFO researchers, the same people that kind of come to the conferences, are going to talk to these guys. But uh, And, you know, I'll do the sandwich technique where I'll say something good first. And uh, I know a lot of people have been defending it, but there are some things that are really frustrating about it where I think we're missing an opportunity. But i got to say it is kind of good. That it is getting press, and of course it is getting uh, the subject into people's minds some more. Um, the other thing that is actually playing in uh, his favor or the favor of the, of the UFO people or you know 
into the topic is that that the press is completely mostly reporting it wrong and saying that these Congress people uh, are for disclosure. They're mm-hmm. the ones pushing this effort, which right. isn't the case whatsoever, right. which is part of my beef with it. But uh, uh, but by doing that, um, you know, at least it's making these politicians look like they are into the topic, which they're not, and some of them have made that very clear. Right. But here again, I mean, it doesn't seem like, you know, here again, I, it comes back to what we were just talking about. It doesn't seem like people care as much about what the politicians are saying, of course, as like actors and actresses do, which gets a lot more press. But, uh, okay, the second thing I'll talk about is a couple of things in that these are things that are frustrating. And I think that this is important, that especially for us, who we're more along the lines of journalists in this, and I've talked to other people that are similar um, he's not requiring that they state what they feel before about the topic and then what they feel after about the topic. When pressed on this, he uh, Stephen Bassett has said that this is like congressional hearings. All they are doing are fact-gathering. Well, that's not, I don't feel that that's accurate whatsoever in that you're gathering facts to form an opinion to take some sort of act on creating some sort of legislation on the facts that you find. And, uh, of course, we do see after congressional hearings that, indeed, they typically come out and want to voice their opinions. And that is vital. If this is a mock trial, then we're taking these Congress people who are kind of like a, a, a control group, uh, a group, and having them look at the evidence and see if it is persuasive to them. Um if this is a mock trial, that's what the purpose of a mock trial is. Otherwise, it's just kind of a um, publicity stunt, um, as opposed to really finding out, okay, is all of this evidence these guys see really compelling to former congressmen, and so then, would it be compelling to current Congress people? Let alone, it's reported they're, they're paying each of these people $20,000 I mean, for goodness sakes, they could at least share their opinion. Uh, it begs the question, is he afraid of what they're going to say afterwards? If, doesn't he feel that the evidence is compelling enough or they're going to be positive about it afterwards? I mean, it's kind of like hiding their opinions afterwards. I don't understand that. And i got to say $600,000 if that's what this is all turning out to be. I mean, it's at least $120,000 with six of these people getting paid twenty thousand dollars just to sit there for five days um you would think six hundred thousand dollars i can think of a lot of better ways probably to spend this money and still make some media buzz oh yeah there there are so many things we could come up with for six hundred thousand dollars we could come up with six six uh playgrounds with uh ufos and slides. <laughs> yeah. oh but uh yeah i i agree with you and number one i I still think, and I've said this before, I, I do think that the overall premise, the way this is being approached, is not the best way to approach it. You know, it's just like the uh, petitions that uh, Stephen Bassett has put forward on the White House website before. They're very accusatory and not really the, the way to phrase things or the, the right things to seek um, if you want people to be interested and and cooperate with you. You know, when you attack people and you're accusatory and your whole premise are these very serious claims, you know, that 
aliens are here on the planet and they've been engaging us and you've been lying to us the whole time. Admit it right now, you've been lying. It, you're not going to get what you want. You know, and the, the premise behind this this uh, mock hearing is to present evidence that UFO or extraterrestrials have been engaging the human race, and, and that the government knows about it, and that the government knows about it. Yeah, it's it's a whole lot of things rather than you know focusing on something much simpler and uh, you know more worthwhile. I think to get the media to take it seriously, to get people to say, you, you know, if if we just took what people were saying, uh, presented this evidence, and said the goal was to uh, convince people that, yes, there are things in our sky that we have no idea what they are. The military doesn't know what they are. Um, they, Because we don't know what they are, they pose a risk to not only to national security, but to, to air safety and everything else. So the evidence supports that we should be researching UFOs and, and you know looking into UFOs more than we already are. That is worthwhile to me. That would make sense and you'd get a lot more people on board. People would say, wow, they released something to this UFO thing. But when you approach it the way it's being approached, I think you turn a lot of people off. And like you said, th there's really nothing new that it, I, I don't see anything new coming out of this than has worked than uh, what's come out of previous attempts by Bassett. Bassett's done things at the National Press Club before. We've heard all of these people speak before. All of their their experiences and their opinions are public knowledge. Not public knowledge, but they're, they're, they're publicly available. They're, they're out there. You can already hear what these people have said, and they've said it numerous times. And there is no mandate of these people, these, these Congress people and the former senator, to do anything after listening to it. And even if they, they were to, if they came out, yeah, it'd make some headlines. They'd say, well, you know, I went into this thing not believing, but after listening to this, I'm a firm believer. That's great, but what does that do? How does that change anything? These are former Congress people. Are they going to go and make phone calls to their perhaps existing buddies on Congress and say, look, I just le learned all this stuff. We should look into it. Maybe, but who knows? You know, Really, what's going to come out of it? And something that I'm wondering about and hoping this isn't the case, but it's possible that they're not the, – the, these people on the panel aren't being required to share their opinion. However, they will have their opinion on the documentary that's being made of this whole event and will be released later. They are you're hoping they will, but you're not sure if they will. I'm hoping it's not the case that this information is being withheld. Their their opinions are being withheld because that's something that will be released oh, in a documentary. Yeah. You know, so it's a hype thing. Well, I'll tell you to the listeners right now that I'm going to try my best. We're going to try our best to get the opinions uh, of all of these Congress people, former Congress Congress people, prior and after to find out if it had an effect, because the best potential I think that this uh, event could have is if it does convince these skeptical Congress people. I think that would be – that would say something, and that we can say mock trials were held and that uh, the former Congress people who were part of it did change their minds from being skeptical to – or to being less skeptical or to – saying that they felt that this was something that the Congress should look into or something like that. I right. think that's the best thing that could happen, and hopefully that will happen, but you you don't even get there if you don't ask them. So I'm going to do my best, and we'll do our best um, to get 
to these people and find out what they have to say right. and see what happens. I think it'll be really interesting. And, of course, I feel that um, there is a good group of people that are going to be talking to these guys. Mm-hmm. So I think there there is good potential. That's why I think it's silly not to ask them their opinion because they're going to be given some really compelling information. So um, I think it's very likely that they are going to be positive and they are going to say, wow, my eyes were open. There's a lot more to this than I thought. Yeah, I mean, with, with the amount of money being put into this, the amount of money they're being paid, you know... I'm with you. I think at the very least we should hear what these people have to say. I mean, that's the whole point of putting this together, and that's what the best thing that can come out of it. So hopefully that's done. And the thing is, all this, you know, in some form or another has been been done before. A lot of the the testimony that's going to be presented there is, you know, similar or the same to what Stephen Greer put out with the Disclosure Project. there already are former military people who have been very vocal about their beliefs that we need to look into the UFO issue more seriously because there is definitely something going on there that needs to be investigated. So, you know, what more will come out of it than we already have at this current point? I don't know, but you're right. It would be great to hear if these people are swayed by the testimony they hear, and hopefully that will encourage other people to explore the topic as well. Yeah. Well, and to your point, that's the only thing I think that can come of it. Because if we don't get their opinions, then really, like you said, we've gone nowhere. This has not helped at all, except for gotten some media out there, and the media press that has gotten out there is not necessarily even positive or really compelling just uh, and in fact, a lot of it is making fun of these Congress people. So um, right. the only thing that could come of it that would be pos- positive is if we do get um, positive responses from them after they they look at this information. That's why I think it's so important. And then if we do get that, uh, again to your point, if we do get that, I think that would be a good thing. That would be a, a bullet point. Um, that would be positive is that there was mock hearings and the former Congress people were skeptical before they went in and not as skeptical and felt there should be hearings when they come out. That's the best case scenario. Mm. That's the best we can get from it. And that would be something, but is it going to move the dial or convince Congress or Washington or even the media to take things more seriously? Like we talked about earlier, I don't think so. People... I mean, are somewhat interested in what politicians have to say, but even less so when they're former politicians. Um, all a lot of these people have some sketchy backgrounds with some um, even possible type of uh, criminal activity with some of them, and that will all come out. Uh, I don't even think it will come out because it's just not even taken serious enough to even look into that or to bring that out. So. Um, yeah, yeah I, mean, I don't know right. if it the, can the, take the, us very far. There there has been, you know, more more press coverage on this already than than I expected, but yeah, as you pointed out, it's it's all been pretty negative. Um very very jokey and making fun of the people involved and uh yeah, pointing out their uh criminal backgrounds and motives for taking the money and uh, just all sorts of things that haven't been very positive. So yeah, the twenty thousand dollars things does not help in that. You know, these people, 
doesn't demonstrate that they're motivated by the topic. They're motivated by getting $20,000 for a right. business week's worth of work, uh, right. which is just to sit there and, you know, eat some free food and have some free drinks and listen to this stuff. Yeah. So, and then finally, let's talk real quick um, just on, because this is a big story and this is really a big scoop that we've got right now, which is, as far as I know, we're the only ones with a full history of this Atacama humanoid that the other Stephen, Stephen Greer, is promoting for his documentary and that he has some DNA to show that this is a, a humanoid of unknown origins. However, this is not a new story. It actually started in 2003 in Chile, and there has been analysis, the most thorough analysis, uh, as we have in our story, especially for those listeners who aren't aware of this, uh, has shown uh, that this guy felt it was a fetus, a guy in uh, Spain. And actually, I'm going to post a picture because I have found some pictures of some fetuses, and it does look very similar in that the only difference is the head on this this creature is, is skinny, but it looks like it's smashed. If you smash the skull of these fetus skulls that you can find online, I think it would look exactly the same. Um, so it does look similar, and that's what this guy felt it was. And this thing was found in the dirt and has been handled for years, uh, which is another argument. So we'll see. We'll see. Dr. Greer says it's some eye-opening evidence that he has that this thing is, is not uh, – well, that it is unknown. They're very – They've written very little about it, so they haven't written about the history. Luckily, the documentary makers have commented on our website and said they're happy that we've released this information because I was a little worried um, that they felt we were going to scoop them or something like that. But it's it's readily available out there in Spanish. And luckily, Antonio, who's from Chile, uh, was aware of the case and knew where to look to get the information. And, of course, he speaks Spanish, so he was able to translate all of this. So you could go to our website and see the history of, of this humanoid creature. Um, and so uh, that's another big story and something cool, a scoop that we have uh, on the website. Yeah, it is very fascinating. A lot of people are interested in this, and I can't wait to see what the documentary um, Sirius, Stephen Greer's film Sirius, um, what they conclude and how they present it. Um, I'm, again, skeptical me, I'm, I'm wondering if... Uh, you know, this is going to be a very small part in the film because I, I know that the film deals with other issues like free energy and stuff, and that's something that Stephen Greer is very passionate about and, and uh, trying to push forward. So, see if this—I mean, it, it seems very, very hype-worthy, and they've certainly done that and got gotten the attention for the film based on this this little creature, this Lanoria ET. Um, but yeah, it's. It's interesting that this uh, this specimen, this creature, uh, is at least ten years old, you know, and it's been handled by numerous doctors, numerous labs. So I'm curious to see what sort of tests uh, they've done for Sirius and what the results will be. Right, and you know what, you got a good point too in that uh, the creature since 2003 has been called the Lenoria alien, yeah. or uh, but. Uh, now they've kind of changed it to the Atacama uh, because Atacama, I guess, is a state. and It's, Lin- a, it's a desert region. Yeah, it's a region where Lanoria was the actual town where it was found. So um, that's the difference between the two uh, yeah. the two names. So, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see uh, what comes out of this. And I guess we should mention 
Uh, right now, we have partnered up with uh, the documentary makers where we're supposed to be one of the first people to be able to show it. So you should, it's going to have its Hollywood premiere on April 22nd. And if things go correctly, we should be able to also have it on our website on April 22nd. But worst case, we'll have it, you know, maybe a day or two after that. But we'll have it on our website for people to see. I think there'll be a charge, though. We haven't, like, uh... I'm yes, not, I believe it's going to yeah. be set up as a pay-per-view. Yeah, Yeah. so, uh, but you'll be able to watch it straight from our site. So that'll be pretty cool, huh? Yeah, I think a lot of, you know, it was announced that this is going to be theatrically released, and surprisingly, their own website hasn't contained a lot of information. Um, you know, just last week, I think they announced that the, the L.A. premiere was going to happen, but other than that, I haven't seen any information about theaters where this movie will be shown. So, Right, yeah. I think it's just the one in that L.A. premiere and then it's going to be an online thing through this uh, Yekia, I think they call it, player. So so it ought to be very interested. I know people are really excited and uh, I think that the, the director who has won an, a regional Emmy in the Minnesota area, so it wasn't like a national, the big old Emmys, but he has won a regional Emmy on a on a documentary he did on a, on a child with Down syndrome. So he's tackled a lot of uh, great topics to highlight some really important things. That's what I love about documentaries. You know, they're very um, – these people have great hearts because they're trying to bring um, some eyes onto topics that they feel are really important. And uh, he's definitely got a passion about Dr. Greer's work, which a lot of people do. So I know a lot of people are looking forward to the documentary. Yep, that's right. Dr. Greer's documentary is titled Sirius. That's S-I-R-I-U-S. And as Alejandro said, that is supposed to debut on the 22nd, so that's next week. All right, so I think we have uh, spoken about all the topics that we plan to. Did you have anything to add, my friend? That is it for me, Alejandro. Okay, great. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to join us next week. For the next show, I am not quite sure who we'll have yet, but we're going to have someone fantastic to interview. That is for sure. And I do want to mention, of course, you can go to uh, our website to also get more UFO news by watching the excellently produced Spacing Out web series. Um, Also, we have a web series called Need to Know, and the latest one, Antonio talked about the FBI files and then um the other thing is i do want to thank i love our open and closed music and our open music's done by um caleb hanks and the closed music is done by a group called two earth minutes so thank you all for producing and and uh getting us that music to play for the show for the rest of you thank you so much for joining have a great week and i'll talk to you next week people 